A picture is worth a thousand words. I could stand up here this morning and just tell you about how immature I was before I got married, or I could show you all a picture. <laughs> this is 19-year-old Luke. He has a nasty mustache and a self-cut mullet. Not a good, you guys are never going to trust the word I say after seeing these pictures. Look at that, good grief. Isn't it amazing what a woman can do in your life? It's incredible, it's incredible. I'm not all that impressive right now, I get it, but I think I've come a long way, don't you? Yeah. A picture is worth a thousand words. As human beings, sometimes just explaining something is not enough. So when God wanted us to understand just how much he loves us, he gave us a picture. Marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. Now let's pause for just a second before we jump in because today we're gonna be talking about marital commitment and some of you today are in really painful places in your marriage. Uh, Maybe you don't know how much longer you can make it and maybe you're ashamed. If that's you, I want you to come talk to us. Everybody's been in hard places in their relationships. There's no shame in it. And we never heal until we let people in to find us. And we want to walk down this journey with you. So if your marriage is struggling right now, if you're on the rocks, come talk to us. We're part of a family, and this is what we do for each other. And today, as as we talk about marital commitment, there are some of you in this room who've been in marriages that did not last for one reason or another. And I want you to know that you're not some kind of second-class Christian. God still has a plan for your life. And we're calling this sermon the gospel of marital commitment because a marital commitment reflects the gospel, the good news of how God loves us. But that same gospel of marital commitment is also gospel, it's good news for those of you who've had marriages that fell apart because God is not done with you. And some of you here in this room are not married So why should you listen to this sermon? Well, in a few weeks, we are going to talk about biblical singleness and what that means. But this sermon is also for you, too. Because uh, perhaps if you're not married, you may be married someday. Or you all have friends that are married, and you need to know how you can help them. And this is a hot-button issue in our culture right now. We need to know how to approach it from a biblical perspective. But most importantly, a proper understanding of marriage will help you see God's heart. Sneak peek, that's the big idea of marriage anyway to figure out who God is and how he loves us. So even if you're not married today, this sermon is for you too because marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. So now we're gonna dig deeper into what that actually means because I'm convinced that understanding this one big idea is the core, the central, the foundational element for every truly healthy marriage. So let's start with a definition of marriage. Marriage is a covenant, a covenant. Now, a covenant is simply a promise, it's a bond, it's a pledge between two parties, an exclusive commitment. And in the Old Testament, when two parties would make a covenant, they would often seal it with vows, and one way to seal those vows would be to cut an animal in half and to walk between the pieces, basically saying, if I break this covenant, may I be like this animal. I've always thought that'd be a really cool thing to do at a wedding someday, but nobody's ever taken us up on it. (laughs) Instead, at a wedding, we exchange rings. Uh, I'm named after my grandfather, 
And when I married my wife, Rebecca, I put on my grandpa's wedding ring from when he married my grandma in the year 1950. And I've never taken this ring off. And I don't plan on ever taking this ring off because it's a reminder to me of my covenant with my wife that I have a permanent, exclusive, public, legal commitment to share all aspects of my wife with Rebecca. And we're talking about God's family tree here in this sermon series. But when I dig deep into my personal family tree, I find that it is rooted on long faithful marriages built on covenant commitment uh, that hardwired into the strands of my DNA are the stories of faithful husbands and wives who've gone before me. I'm incredibly blessed with my family history. Every one of my great-grandparents was a Christian, and they were married until death did them part. And my grandparents, too. A small-town boy named Gene married a farm girl named Kathy one hot summer day, and 51 years later, they're still going strong. And a Navy man named Don, who got hitched to the local school teacher, Ruth, married 55 years, and now they're worshiping together in heaven. And then there's Ray and Ann, backwoods kids from Kentucky, lifelong servants of the church, married 68 years. Bud Betts, a cattleman from Tyro, Kansas, who married his uh, local sweetheart, Irene, and they lived in the same farmhouse all 70 years of their marriage. And every one of my cousins in our big, giant, crazy family has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and is actively involved in serving the church. Why is that? I believe that's in part because we learned who God was from watching our great-grandparents and our grandparents and our parents' fierce commitment to each other. They weren't perfect people, far from it, and we saw their mistakes, but at the end of the day, they were fiercely committed to God and each other. It's a covenant. But we live in a culture, don't we, where covenants are rare. And promises are cheap. We live in a world where love is fickle and the commitment of marriage just seems like too much. So we settle instead for a cheap substitute. We settle for sex however and whenever we want it. We settle for living together, cohabitation, getting the perks of being married without having to make the commitment. And inside the covenant of marriage, sex is one of God's best and most beautiful gifts. It's the cherry on top of a life of commitment to one other person in marriage. But outside the covenant of marriage... Sex is incredibly destructive. You have to look far and wide to find even a single person who doesn't have some kind of a sexual scar on their heart from sex being misused and causing deep pain in their lives. And still, people play with fire, wanting the thrill of illicit behavior without the foundation of covenant commitment. So if the world doesn't view love as this covenant commitment, what does the world view love as? Well, the world views love not as a covenant, but as a contract. Now, the difference between a covenant and a contract is that a covenant is a promise that weathers the storms of time, but a contract is something that you can get out of as soon as the other party doesn't hold up their end of the bargain. The Greek word that the Bible uses to most often describe the love that we're called to have and the love that God has for us is the word agape. Agape love is commitment love. It's a love that you choose more than a love that you feel. Agape love withstands the storms of time. Agape love is a promise. It's not something that you just get out of. It's a love that loves no matter what, despite the unworthiness of the other person. Now, a contract love says, I love you if you make me happy. I love you as long as our love life is spicy. I love you as long as your bank account is fat. I love you as long as you make me feel respected and keep the house clean and our personalities are compatible. That's contract love. And as soon as the other party doesn't hold up their end of the deal. But thankfully, 
that's not how God loves us. God loves us with covenant love. God does not love you because of what you have done. God loves you in spite of what you have done. And that's how we are called to love each other, with, with, a, with a no matter what, till death do us part, hanging on for dear life and the highs and the lows and everything in between kind of love. Now, agape love, it's a choice. It's a covenantal commitment that stands firm even when your spouse is rude and does not deserve respect or when you're emotional and you don't feel like you can take it any longer or when you go to bed angry or when the finances are tight or when miscarriages happen or when kids turn their backs or when personalities change or when they're not who you think they were or when you're working hard to look like Jesus and they're not doing the same. Covenant love says, I love you despite all that and I'm committed to keep loving you to show you just how much God loves you. Marriage is, is a covenant. It's not a contract. And we see this throughout Scripture, that God's people, they keep breaking their covenant with him over and over and over again. But no matter how many times they screw it up and run away, God just doesn't give up. He doesn't break his promise. In fact, he goes so far as to come down here himself and die for us, absorbing the curse of us breaking the covenant so that we could still be God's bride. No matter what. God's covenant love keeps loving. And marriage is supposed to be a picture of that kind of love, a picture of the love that God has for us. Just look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. Everything about marriage is designed to reflect our relationship with Jesus. Verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit, your husband, wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verses 31 and 32, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of God's love for his people, a lifelong commitment, till death do you part. I'm committed to my wife. I want to grow old with her. I heard about one couple of 50 years, they were sitting on the couch resting one day, she was laying his head on his lap, he was stroking her hair, and... And gently, he took her glasses off. He said, you know, honey, without your glasses, you look just like that beautiful young woman that I married all those years ago. She said, you know, honey, without my glasses, you look pretty good too. <laughs> and I want to have that kind of love. That's what I want. Can I encourage you guys for just a minute? Most of us have probably heard the stats about a 50% divorce rate and how those stats are the same for Christians as they are for non-Christians, that there's not much of a difference between the church and the world. Well, actually, that's not true. It's, it's really hard to identify what the first marriage divorce rate actually is, but it's likely somewhere in, in the ballpark of 20 to 25%, not 50%, 20 to 25% of first marriages end a divorce. Now, once you start factoring second and third marriages and all that, the rate definitely goes up. Uh, but even in the highest risk age group, which is the baby boomers, 70% of them are still married to their first spouse. And those rates are even lower among those in the church. Now, this factors in church attendance, people who are practicing their faith, rather than people just say they believe in Jesus or whatever. But it's actually shown that if a person was in church last week, 
their divorce rate drops by 27%. And regular church attendance is actually shown to decrease the divorce rate by as much as 50%. Now, any, any amount of divorce is still too high. But this is good news. This shows that there are people in the church who get it, and they're living out God's covenant commitment-keeping love in their marriages. And I see that when I look at you. Those of you who have worked hard for decades to leave behind a legacy of love and faithfulness and commitment. And as a guy who's just getting started on his journey, I want to say thank you. Because when I look at you, I see the picture. I get the picture. I understand God's committed, covenant-keeping love. So thank you. Marriage is a covenant. That's the definition. Now let's look at the direction of marriage. The direction of marriage. Marriage requires change. We all change in marriage, don't we? Uh, Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5.31 as he's quoting Genesis 2. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, that's change, and be united to his wife, that's change, and the two will become one flesh, that's change. We are called to change. We're called to leave our families of origin and reorient our priorities to form a new family unit. It's called leaving and cleaving. It requires change, but it not only requires a change uh, from, from our old family to a new family, ultimately we're also called to move away from ourselves and inward focus, and we're called to move outwards towards each other. The direction of marriage is outward toward each other, not inward toward ourselves. We're called to move outward, to reveal ourselves, to be open, to be unified, to become one person, totally bare with each other, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Just like Adam and Eve, it says they were naked and they felt no shame. We become one with our spouse. That means that I'm not me anymore without Rebecca. And yet, even as we become one, we're still different, aren't we? We are different. And none of us are the exact same after we got married as before we got married. Some of us changed dramatically when we got married. You guys saw my picture earlier, and a picture is worth a thousand words. So let's take a look at a couple other pictures of somebody pre-marriage. You guys know who that guy is? That's your preacher, Steve White. (laughs) Pre-Diana, look at that hairdo. I don't know who that girl is, but I'm sure glad he didn't marry her. (laughs) Good grief. Yeah. Steve White for president. There we go. We actually have a petition out in the lobby. On your way out, sign it. We want Steve to get that hairdo back. Am I the only one who wants that? Yeah, that's right. Look at this guy. My goodness. All I have to say is thank you, Diana White. What a marvelous transformative impact you have had. (laughs) Marriage requires change because We are just different, aren't we? We're different in the way we're wired, in our personalities, in our genders. Go ahead and pull out your pointer fingers. Get your elbows ready. If you're sitting by your spouse, this is the one time in church I'm gonna let you point the finger at each other, okay? Here we go. Uh, Figure out which one of these is you. One of you loves to be on time, and the other one of you is always running late. (laughs) One of you enjoys going to bed early. The other one's a night owl. One of you likes a clean car. The other one is a car slob. You could live out of that thing for six months. (laughs) One of you loves to talk. The other one of you is content living inside your own head, yeah? One of you is very decisive. The other one of you looks at a menu for 15 minutes and still can't decide. (laughs) One of you loves public displays of affection. The other one's a little bit more reserved. One of you is smart. The other one is, uh, just kidding, we're not gonna go there, we're not gonna go there. (laughs) 
We have these built-in differences, don't we? And those are good. They're designed by God. But we also have these broken differences, too, don't we? Sin finds a way to creep into all of our relationships. But imagine, imagine how good Adam and Eve's marriage must have been before sin came into the world. I mean, there in the Garden of Eden, they had it made. They never had to wonder if they married the right person or not. Yeah, they found the one, literally, right? <laughs> just think, they never had to compare their marriages with other people's marriages. And just think, Eve never came up to Adam and said, honey, what should I wear today? <laughs> That's a good marriage. <laughs> and yet, then sin came along in Genesis chapter 3, and one of the first things that it affected was their marriage. They started blaming each other. And that's what sin does in our relationships. It, it distorts our movement. And so instead of moving outwards openly towards each other like we're designed to, we move inwards toward ourselves. We hide, we blame, we control, we protect, we compete. And so instead of the two becoming one, sin splits the one into two. And sin is going to come into your marriage. That's just the reality of life. Marriage is like this mirror that reveals our sin and our selfishness, and it just shows it in vibrant color to ourselves and to our spouses. So when, when we're confronted with our sin like that, what's our natural response? We try to compete. We try to cover ourselves. We try to be right. Uh, we bottle up bitterness over unmet needs. We argue with each other. We think our spouse wronged us, ways that we think that we didn't get what we deserved. And then we try to change our spouse, don't we? I've heard it said that on her wedding day, a bride thinks about three things, the aisle, the altar, and him. And it goes like this, I'll alter him. <laughs> and let's be honest, most of us have been there. We think, man, I've been to SeaWorld. I know they can train a dolphin to play basketball. Why can't I train my husband to pick up the clothes off the floor? We try to change our spouse. And yet, that distorts our movement. That's taking marriage in the wrong direction. That's trying to make your spouse work towards you when marriage is about us working towards our spouse, loving them the way that God loves us. That means that instead of changing the other person, we're called to let God change us first. That means, as one author says, that the goal of marriage is not to make you happy, but to make you holy. The goal of my marriage is not to make Rebecca Proctor who I want her to be. It's to help her become who God is calling her to be. Uh, look at what we see here about this in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, as a husband, it's my job to lovingly move towards Rebecca, to open myself to her, to help her become who God is calling her, her to be. Not to move selfishly towards her, to get to be what I want her to be, or to get my selfish desires met, to, but to move towards her in a godly way. If we would have read on there, verse 29 talks about how we're supposed to feed and care for our wives, just like we feed and care for our own bodies, and like Christ feeds and cares for his church. And that word feed there, 
is the same word used to describe what a mom does for the baby in the womb. Tender, nurturing, protecting, caring, giving what's ours to them selflessly. So husbands, wives, do you tenderly nurture each other in that way? Are you putting the other's needs above your own? And when we do that, what's beautiful is when we turn away from ourselves and toward, turn, turn towards each other, it results in this beautiful, deep, spiritual friendship. And that's what marriage is called to be. I hope that you can look at your spouse like I can and say, she's my best friend in the world. He knows me. He helps me become like Jesus. She's my closest companion. I hope you can say that. Because then when we have that level of intimacy moving towards each other, we can use our differences not to wedge us apart, but to bring us together as we walk side by side to become more like Jesus. My wife, Rebecca, is a lot better at this than I am. Uh, she's my best friend of the world, but we're very different people, no, no secret there. And yet she's made a commitment to move outwards, to move towards me so we can become one even in our differences. And that means simple little things. That means that as, as we're driving along the road, she makes it a point to try to notice the crops in the field and talk with me about farming. And, and, and she makes a point. She's learned. She's studied cars. So when she sees cars driving down the road, she can tell what kind of a car that is. And we can have conversations about cars. And she, she knows the names and the personalities and even the batting stances of the players on the St. Louis Cardinals. And we watch baseball games together. And she loves me like that. She moves towards me. And those aren't things that naturally matter to Rebecca, but they matter to me. And so she makes them matter to her. She moves towards me. And then at so much of a deeper level than that, when I sin, or when I'm a lousy husband, or when I have a bad day, she's the first one to encourage me, the first one to forgive me, the first one to know me, the first one to move towards me, the first one to love me, the first one to preach the gospel truth to my heart. And even when our built-in differences and our broken differences threaten to drive a wedge between us, she's constantly working towards the holy unity that God designed for us. That's the direction of marriage. So lastly, let's look at the depiction of marriage. The depiction of marriage. The definition of marriage is a covenant, not a contract. The direction of marriage is to move outward towards each other, not inward towards ourselves. And lastly, we're going to look at the depiction of marriage. We've already read it, but verse 32, let's read it again. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is a depiction, a picture of God's love for his people. Nowhere, I think, in the Bible is this seen more vividly than in the book of Hosea. Hosea is one of the most shocking and emotionally gut-wrenching love stories ever told. God goes to this young man, Hosea, and he says to him, he says, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, Hosea is a prophet. He's a man of God devoted to preaching and teaching the people how to follow God. He's a good man. And now God tells Hosea, a man who's worked so hard to keep his purity, to go marry a woman who's thrown hers away. Why? Because their marriage is going to be an object lesson. God is going to use this sad story, the story of a broken home, a broken vow, a broken heart, to reveal just how much he loves his people. And so Hosea and Gomer get married. 
And to keep a long story short, it's not long before Hosea's wife, Gomer, she starts staying out late at night. And he can't sleep, wondering where she is, who she's with. And then finally, Gomer actually gets pregnant. And Homer's thinking, finally, maybe, maybe this will make her stay. Maybe she'll settle, settle down. Maybe she'll stay with me now. But no. Gomer actually eventually gives birth to three children. Who knows who the fathers are? And on top of that, she leaves all three of those kids with Hosea and she runs to chase after other men. And so Hosea, the town preacher, is left in scandal and shame. And you know how word gets around in a small town, gossip over the backyard fence. Preacher's wife's gone again. He can tell us how to live, but he can't keep his own home under control. And as Gomer goes around from man to man and bed to bed, they don't care much for her at all. Her lovers eventually sell her into slavery She's up on the auction block, stripped of her humanity, a piece of property, a hunk of flesh to be sold for pleasure. And it's there we read Hosea's words. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, he says, The Lord said to me, Go, show your wife your love again. Though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Can you imagine the whispers in the crowd as the auction begins when the people notice that Hosea's watching? Ah, came to see her get what she deserves, I guess. And then the bidding starts. Nice girl here, she'd make a good slave. Anybody give me 10? 10 shekels. We'll start at 10 shekels. Anybody give me 10? All right, I see 10, 10. Anybody got 13? 13 shekels. All right, I see 13, 14. How about 14 shekels? And then Hosea's voice from the edge of the crowd. 15 shekels of silver. All right, I got 15 shekels of silver. Anybody got 15, 15, 15? Another voice from the other side. 15 shekels of silver and a bushel of barley. 15 shekels and a bushel of barley. Anybody, anybody beat that? Hosea speaks up. 15 shekels and a, a bushel and a half of barley. Sold to the preacher in the back row. Then the whispers in the crowd start up again. Sir, seems like a waste of good money. Why spend all that cash just so you can punish her? Seems like a lot to pay for revenge. But Hosea wasn't after revenge. He didn't buy her to punish her. He bought her to redeem her. And as they unshackle Gomer, he wraps a cloak around her and says, come on, honey, it's time to go home. And the people in the town are thinking, Hosea, you've gotta be crazy. She doesn't love you. You gotta be nuts to think that she's changed. What are you doing? And yet Hosea loves her anyway. Not because he feels like loving Gomer, but because his marriage is a picture of how God loves his people. And so is yours. Because in this story, we're all Gomer. We've all been unfaithful to our covenant with the Lord. And even though we've broken our end of the covenant, God is faithful to his In the book of Hosea, the price that Hosea pays to buy back, to redeem Gomer, was the price of a common slave, equivalent to 30 pieces of silver. Tell me, who else was sold out for 30 pieces of silver to redeem us? What Hosea did to Gomer is what God does to us and what we are called to do to each other. Because a picture is worth a thousand words. We're getting ready to come to this time of communion that serves as a picture 
to remind us of God's great love for us shown most clearly in Christ on the cross. You know, God could have just told us that he loved us and cared about us and wanted to help, but instead he gave us a picture. He came down here himself to show us just how much he cared. God could have just told us that he loved us, but he gave us a picture. He sent Jesus so that now every time we see the cross, we know just how God feels about us. Because he didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk, carried the cross all the way up Golgotha, not just telling us, but showing us what kind of a love it is that God has for us. A love that looks a lot like a cross. Because a picture is worth a thousand words. And your marriage should be a picture of that same kind of cross-shaped love to a world that needs to not just hear about it, but also to see it in us. The goal of everything in our Christian life is to look like Jesus, right? We're called to act like Christ in everything. So what kind of picture are you painting with your marriage? Does your marriage reflect God's covenant Sacrificial love? Maybe your marriage is struggling right now. Maybe your marriage is stale right now. How about you make the first move and commit to loving your spouse in the same way that God loves you even when they don't deserve it? You're not gonna do it perfectly. (laughs) None of us do. But why don't you commit to serving and loving and giving anyway, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? Is your marriage painting a picture It looks like the cross, because that's the best picture of all of God's love for us. His love is not contractual. It's not selfish. Rather, Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. While we were still a mess, Jesus Christ came to us. Although we were different and we were sinful and we were unfaithful, he gave himself for us anyway, choosing to love us and uphold the covenant. Marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. So is your marriage painting a picture that looks like the cross?